Hello, and welcome to Nerds and Nodes, the Mac AI podcast. My name is Gal, and I will be your host. This show is for those of you who are interested in learning all about artificial intelligence and its countless applications in the fields of science, business, medicine, engineering, and more. Each podcast will have a different expert come in and cover a variety of topics, including their own experiences and career path, current developments in AI, real-world applications of their work, and even some speculations for the future. If you're interested in hearing advice directly from the experts in AI, then this is the podcast for you. Today's guest is Dr. Jody Labana. She's an award-winning management consultant with over 15 years of experience in the fields of internal and external audit, accounting and finance, and risk management. She's currently teaching a course at York University on the governance of information technology and has taught courses at the University of Waterloo, McMaster University, and the prestigious Indian Institute of Technology. Dr. Labena is also currently a chair of the advisory board for our very own McMaster Artificial Intelligence Society. She just recently completed her PhD right here at McMaster, and today she's here to introduce us to the complex world of the governance of AI. Dr. Jody Labana, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Gal. I'm looking forward to speaking with you and speaking to our members of McMaster AI Society. Oh, thank you very much. So let's start off. Can you tell me about your recent PhD studies and sort of what those were about, what your experiences were like, uh, anything sort of relevant to the field of artificial, artificial intelligence? Yes, my recent study, well, I just got uh, got my convocation done. It was on uh, November 26, I believe, just two, three days ago. And um, so my thesis topic was on governance of artificial intelligence, mainly from board of directors perspective. So how should boards govern artificial intelligence within their organization to, uh, to the maximum level, to create maximum value? from their AI-based products and services. That was the main mandate. And uh, as part of this thesis, they developed a framework that boards can use uh, to govern. So it has, uh, we can talk further about it uh, during this interview later on, and I can give you um, a high level snapshot of the framework as well. Oh, yeah, that would be great. I mean, uh, um, I know we're interested both in uh, uh, sort of how artificial intelligence uh, plays a role in businesses, both, you know, um, at a general level and then the nitty gritty, I guess we can touch on both of those at, at any point. Um, sure. So, sorry. So what exactly like your, uh, what, what made you get into this field in the first place? Um, actually looking back, it all started off in early 2017 and when I first uh, read something Elon Musk had said, hmm. he had said that uh, AI has the potential of dis- to destroy humanity. And uh, his contention was that we must make sure that we have some sort of regulatory or governance regimes um, in order to manage AI. Otherwise, it could be a disaster for humanity. So when I, when I first read uh, things like that in... Um, I think first quarter of 2017, right at that uh, moment, uh, I decided that AI is the area that I want to work in and mainly on the governance side, because I've been actually teaching governance of information technology at York University since 2011. 
And so when I think about AI, AI is just actually, um, it took, uh, it's kind of information technology, but I guess broader than information technology. But um, there are similarities between governance of IT and governance of AI. So I was right fit for this particular field. And I decided that that's perhaps my um, area where I can make the most influence in, most impact in. Yeah. Um, And I think really it's, um, you know, as relevant of a topic as ever, you know, there's, uh, we talk so much about um, which new AI technologies are coming out and what we can do and um, everything that's coming out that's so recent, but we, we don't really consider, and I think this applies not just to AI, but um, everything else, like modern technology that comes out is how do we regulate its use so that people don't take advantage of it, so that we make sure it's ethical. Um, so I, I think it's a, it's a really... Um, um, not just an interesting, but extremely relevant and important topic to uh, to cover. So it's uh, I think it's great that you're uh, um, you're here to talk to us about it today. Um, yeah. And so your overarching uh, kind of goal, um, do you on your end, you you don't specifically div- like how exactly do you research AI governance? Is what I mean. So the methodology that I used was a qualitative methodology, interview-based. So I interviewed uh, chief data officers, chief AI officers, uh, AI scientists, one of the Turing Award winner scientists as well. He was was the first person I interviewed. Um, So more than 60 um, different individuals were, I either directly talked to them um, or I attended, uh, for a few of them, they were not directly available. So I attended their conference presentations. So, uh, what I learned from all of that, my job was to bring it together in a framework that corporations and the board of directors of the corporations can utilize. So mainly interview based. Okay. And have you actually seen these, um, sort of governance-based policies been, have they been implemented so far? Or what have you gathered exactly? So what's going to happen, because I just completed the PhD, um, that uh, the next step is through my company, Terra Terra Collaborations Inc. This is a new uh, consulting firm that I've formed. I've actually been running a consulting business since 2005, under Lobana Consulting Group Inc. Um, but uh, after my PhD, I decided that I was going to rebrand and do work for governance of AI under the Taratara brand. So we are in the process of launching the website taratara.ai, which will be launched over the next two, three months. So look forward uh, to that. Oh, wow. um, but uh, the work that the company is going to be doing is um, we will take this framework that have been developed and use that to create trainings for board of directors and C-level management, advisory work, and also to create a diagnostic tool that will compare the current governance that that a company has. For example, CIBC. CIBC has their current governance of artificial intelligence. I could compare that with the effective practices that are found in, in, in research and then do a gap analysis. And from that gap analysis, the recommendations can be made to the board of directors on how they can improve their governance processes. So that is um, one of the key agendas of uh, Terra Terra uh, company 
And then second would be to do take on AI projects and uh, work in collaboration with AI scientists, uh, experts in particular domains to uh, deliver projects for the companies. Oh, wow. That's, uh, that's really interesting stuff. So you basically, from your own work and your PhD, for example, interviewing um, really uh, people who are way high up there in, uh, in terms of the AI technology itself, and you translate, uh, translate that into sort of, um, uh, yeah, like actual trainings to implement into these large scale corporations, right? Yes. Wow. Oh, that's, uh, that's incredible work, really. Um, and so I, I just want to sort of do a bit of speculation with you, if possible, um, about how, like, the governance of AI specifically, if we weren't to have this sort of structure implemented, like, what are, you know, why, why should we have the governance AI in the first place, the governance okay. of AI, sorry. So governance deals with two main things. First, it deals with delivering the maximum possible value out of your AI products and services. And second, it deals with the risk management. And the risk management could relate to regulatory compliance issues, data and AI security issues, um, ethical issues. All of those are covered under risk management. And um, return maximization, which is the other aspect that governance does, that, that relates to how you deploy your resources, whether it's your people, internal or external resources, whether it's the data that you deploy, compute resources that you deploy, the risk capital that, that's needed, the top-level management that you may ha- need to hire. All of those things are covered uh, within governance. So if you don't have effective governance, what happens is you, you can't can get to the maximum value that is available to your company through the deployment of AI products or services. You may, you may not find the right resources. You, your company may not be ready. It may not have the right culture. Um, it may not have the right processes to gather data so that you can utilize it to create model. So all of those things are covered in the framework so that your eyes are on all the key ingredients that are needed um, to get the maximum value out of your AI uh, products and services, as well as to decrease the risk uh, related to that. So AI really, it seems, encapsulates almost everything around businesses, I guess. Like it really uh, touches on every sort of uh, sector imaginable, um, which is something that, you know, we don't really uh, think about. Um, When you think about a business, it's more like, oh, we use AI to... uh, uh, maybe recommend products and services or to, I don't know, search for the best candidates for hiring. But um, it seems like it really goes far beyond that, doesn't it? Yeah. And it can be deployed anywhere where you used to deploy humans and humans with intelligence. Um, artificial intelligence is actually machines with intelligence. Yeah. So what kind of intelligence? Like we make decisions, for example, and our decisions are based on past data or past experience that, that that we've had. So if we convert the past experience into data format and feed it through algorithm and algorithm learns it, all of a sudden, instead of a human, those decisions can be made by an artificial intelligence um, a service that you may your company may have. Hmm. So whenever wow. you have been making decisions, which every company makes, um, AI can replace humans there. 
So that's just one functionality of it. And I'm I'm sure once we start to dig deeper, we start to go into reinforcement learning and uh, robotics, which is like now the extensions of artificial intelligence. And uh, But it all comes back to AI related to the cognitive functions that humans have. Mm-hmm. And we are trying to give those cognitive functions to uh, artificial intelligence. I see. So... Oh, wow. So, okay. Because you, you say replace, right? And I know it's a, it's a big, um, it's a big consideration that we make, um, you know, when these companies leverage AI, do you ever see that they, you know, completely trust this AI system to do whatever task it is? Or um, are we at the stage where we still need, um, he, you know, humans to accompany the technology and supervise it to make sure that it doesn't make mistakes or whatever it is. Hmm. I guess the question that you're really asking, Gal, is a human in the loop type of question. Do we yeah. need human in the loop of whole decision-making process? So it depends on what decision uh, that is being made. For example, if Amazon is using AI to help uh, making recommendations for any other products that you may be interested in, then perhaps it doesn't matter. Even if the recommendations were not right, uh, because at the end of the day, end user is still going to make their decision based on their own brain. Um, But no human in the loop was necessary per se. Well, you could say, well, the decision maker in this case was human. So perhaps we could consider that as as a human. But um, actually, the working of the recommendation systems doesn't have a human within it. You make your purchases, and then recommendation systems gives you the recommendations all automated within mm. AI, right? Yeah. But then uh, on the on completely on the opposite side of this, if you are now starting to deal with the power systems or nuclear reactors, of course you need lots of humans in the loop, yeah. not just one human. You you want multiple humans in the loop before AI can automatic uh, AI can be automated. You don't want to just AI to make decision and just activate its decision um, because there is a significant risk attached. So the risk level would determine whether you want still humans in the loop or not for a particular AI product or service, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. It's, uh, it's completely dependent on context, I guess. And yeah, you're right. You know, if it is just reaching an end user based on do I want product A or B in my recommendations list, then sure, it doesn't matter. But I guess when uh, uh, maybe I wouldn't go as far as to say as, you know, lives are at stake, but, you know, whole industries like, yeah, the uh, 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 the whole sector dealing with energy, for example, um, that, that's yeah definitely a, a big part of how uh, I guess we can use AI and leverage AI to optimize uh, whatever processes. But uh, at the end of the day, we need humans to still stay in the loop and make sure nothing goes wrong. Or um, I guess we're not there yet in terms of totally trusting uh, AI. Yes. And then um, actually one of the examples that I heard once, and I really like it, um, it is when elevators first came into play. There used to be a man taking us up and down the elevator and he would press the button and it was probably before your times. <laughs> um, and um, it was needed because of the fact that 
we could not trust elevator elevator was a box that we were going into and yeah. then we 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 didn't trust as humans that elevators would work properly or if they didn't work did did we have the knowledge to come out of that that metal box but guess what uh, eventually as we continued to work with the elevators we f- we figured out you know uh 9.999% and 9.9.99 uh, out of 10 we um elevators are fine yeah so we took the man out hmm. and we said we will press the button ourselves the users and elevators will go up and down without the uh, a specialist expert elevator man in the loop huh. so the same thing oh. applies to ai as well wow uh, that's a, a very interesting example um i guess it just shows that what we know today is uh, uh acceptable or uh, you know what we feel sort of obligated to supervise you know even uh, 10 20 years from now might be completely different yeah everything is uh, transitional like whatever is happening now as the years go by uh, it's going to require it's a completely different governance frame um, maybe 10 10 years 20 years down the line that's why even for the governance framework that uh, might that I've developed in the thesis um I've said that it needs to be reviewed every couple of years to make mm-hmm. sure that it is still relevant and um if it's not then what are the changes that are required so this is the uh, the version 0 of uh, the thesis framework the governance yeah. of ai framework and every 2 to 3 years it will have another version Um, so if you were to let's say let's say start your thesis right now from scratch uh rather than uh back a few years ago um do you really expect it would be such a a significant change compared to 2017 18 um actually so far i don't see as significant a change and especially because i made the uh thesis very holistic at a higher level the high level dimension higher level dimensions may not change but the detailed uh work may may, may shift um so currently i don't see that it will be significant difference within the last 2 3 years but having said that um would i still want to look at it uh, every 2 to 3 years to make sure that nothing has shifted especially in the details of it so so the th- thesis has uh, eight uh governance areas um and then 22 different elements under it and then about 250 sub elements so wow. it's the sub elements themselves and that's where the question starts to arise that if let's say we don't have as many humans but it's really instead of humans managing ai it's ai managing ai hmm. so if if that happens over next few years more and more does it mean the framework sub element needs to be changed um to make sure that ai is managing ai properly okay i see so i i think this is a good opportunity maybe to dive in a bit deeper into you know what those actual uh higher dimensional uh structures look like and um you know how that plays down or what the hierarchy i guess um is so can you talk a bit yeah, about that yeah sure uh so the eight main um governance areas are the first is 
in order to have, uh, remember what is the overall goal of the thesis? Overall goal is how do board of directors um, govern AI in the most effective manner? So that, that's the overall goal yeah. of the thesis. So first is, in order to have an effective governance, what do you need? You need board that is knowledgeable and engaged. So that is the first uh, sub-area of governance. Second is once you have a knowledgeable and engaged board, you need um, you need uh, triple C management. I call it's a triple C management. What is it? It is collaborative, uh, competent, and um, collaborative, competent, and one more C on this. Hmm. Mm, let me just see here. Let me just did I put. Hold on, just one second. That's okay. Um, collaborative, competent, and and one more. It will come back to me. Yeah, so no it worries. is the, the, the triple C management, I call it. Mm-hmm. It will come back as soon as I stop thinking about it. <laughs> um, and uh, you need a focused AI strategy. Um, for example, Google called uh, its strategy. When they started looking at AI back in 2017, they said that, Google is going to follow AI first strategy. So everything that Google was uh, and did from 2017 onwards, they deployed AI as part of it, wow. right? And then, so focused AI strategy. Um, then I have uh, within the thesis document there, I, I talk about something called H1, H2, H3 strategy, three horizon strategy, which means that you need to deploy um, strategic um, plans um, not just for zero to one um, for the one year, but two to three years and then uh, three year onward. So these are different plans. And maybe if we have more time later on in the interview, I'll describe the H1, H2, H3 strategy a bit more in a bit more detail. Um, you need to deploy risk capital. So because, as you know, AI is risky. It's experimental. Mm-hmm. It's more like a science rather than maths, right? Like it's uh, as science projects, you you projects can fail, mm-hmm. and um, so you'll be a have you have to deploy risk capital. You have to know that okay, we're putting in um, I don't know these few millions of dollars, or depending on the how big your company is, that some of that money may not pan out into return of, on investment. Mm-hmm. But hopefully you have deployed uh, money into several different projects that some projects will succeed. And hopefully they'll succeed so well that it will recapture the losses from other projects. So that's on strategy. And uh, after that, you need uh, great people. You need mm-hmm. AI scientists to, be, uh, to work. And AI scientists are good AI scientists are difficult to get. So that's where um, the thesis recommends that you have uh, collaborations with uh, universities like McMaster, um, University of Toronto, uh, institutes like Vector Institute in order to find good AI scientists. And then it also talks about the fact that you need to develop your people in-house as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, So even the non-AI scientists need to be developed into their AI knowledge. So whether through courses, in-house courses, you may run hackathons for your company, um, you may set up internal Slack channels so people learn from each other. 
Um, so there are various means that are available to a company to um, build their people. And um, then when you have the people, then you need data. As you know, for AI, um, data is the most important. You cannot build your uh, artificial intelligence model without having the training data available. Um, so we have many strategies that I talk about as part of uh, and the thesis and how you can get that data. Um, apart from data, you need uh, algorithms. Generally, it's open source algorithms people have been using, as you know, and they are uh, readily available. So you need good AI scientists to be able to search those uh, right algorithms. Then you need compute space. That's where a lot of money gets spent because um, some algorithms are very compute in intensive. Yeah. So you need significant amount of money for that. Um, so once you have that, then you start to get into on the risk management side. And as I mentioned before, whether you deploy internal auditors, uh, risk management personnel, um, you have to make sure that they, they're trained first on AI as well. A lot of people are not trained yet um, in this new domain. So the company has to put in the efforts to, uh, to really train uh, their people. Uh, and then, of course, um, you need uh, compliance specialists because regulatory, regulatory compliance requirements are significantly changing, constantly changing. So you need uh, proper compliance specialists. You need uh, cybersecurity individuals so that your data and AI security is maintained. Um, then beyond that, you start to get in uh, the next uh, areas on the ethics side. Mm -hmm. And that's where you... Uh, the thesis is asking for uh, the fact that, you know, ethics by design. So make sure that ethics get embedded in various part of AI development and deployment. And um, we can talk a bit further after, um, uh, as we continue in the interview, what are the main areas of ethics that, that companies are concerned about? Yeah. Um, and the last but not the least is um, you have to continue your digital transformation um, as a company so that more and more data is available for future AI deployments. And, um, and, and even the, your governance practices need to be reviewed every two to three years. As I said before, just, just as the framework is being reviewed, companies need to review their governance practices as well. Wow. So... That was, uh, I, I guess, a lot of information, but it, it makes complete sense, you know, um, as, you know, like I said earlier, if you were to start your thesis uh, now, or if you were to start it five years from now, right, these overarching principles, they, they're sort of integral to the success of AI within a company. It's not something that necessarily needs to change. It doesn't matter yeah. if five or 10 years from now, you'll still need good, uh, good AI scientists, you'll still need good cybersecurity uh, and a solid plan for success. Yeah. Wow. So I guess the real shift, if there is any, would be in the uh, in the deeper sub elements. Yeah. So because um, as the regulatory requirements shift, some of those sub elements we may need to shift, or as AI becomes so active that AI starts to manage other AI instead of humans, mm -hmm. or if we don't have too many humans in the company, but really it's an AI-run company. Um, and then uh, there might be some additional things that you uh, you want to deploy, some additional controls that are currently may not be present. 
Okay. Oh, I see. So I guess with all of that in mind, I did really want to touch up on um, the ethics side. And that's something that I, I wanted to ask you about earlier, because while we talk about uh, the governance of AI, um, uh, yeah, what kind of ethical considerations do we have to make? And, um, you know, are there governing bodies out there that oversee this sort of thing? Or, um, you know, is it in mm. the hands of the company itself to make sure no rules are broken? It is, um, I guess it's uh, two ways to think about it. it. There's regulatory compliance, for example, GDPR um, under your European Union. So if you are doing business with European Union citizens, um, then you will have to de- um, follow GDPR. Um, California has their own regulation called CCPA. So if you're in California, you would have to follow the, those regulations. But those regulations may not be all the ethics-related principles that your company may want to follow. So what um, there is a document that is created by Berkman Klein's Center. It's called Principled Artificial Intelligence. And what they did is they looked at 36 different organizations that have come up with ethics or AI-related principles that companies should follow. 36 different uh, institutions, nations, uh, and they came up with eight, eight principles that every company should follow based on the 36 that they looked at, 36 different ones. Uh, would you like to know what the eight were? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. So um, I've uh, shifted uh, the ranking of it based on... Uh, my thesis, because I think there are three or four that are more important than other ones. Um, the most important that came out in, in the thesis work was on bias and fairness. Hmm. You want to make sure that you have enough uh, controls in place, um, that your uh, AI is not biased in its decision making. And it's fair to all parties involved, non-discriminatory. So that's number one. Second is, of course, privacy privacy of the individual's data is yeah. very important and that's what your your regulatory the gdpr's uh regulation type of regulations also deal with privacy uh next is around safety and security of your ai model and your data very important uh everything around the cyber security related risks and yeah. uh, next is uh, transparency and explainability are you able to explain the decisions? Like, for example, if you have uh, denied somebody credit, so and AI made the decision, can you now explain it? So mm. that explainability and transparency is very important. And the next four were um, human control of technology. Although I kind of consider that that's a little difficult because more and more, I think, technology is going to control humans yeah yeah that seems to be the uh, yeah it seems to be the trend for sure yeah but uh, at least uh, the desire is on humans part the human control of technology yeah and then there um, the next principle is around professional responsibility so whoever gets involved in the ai development deployment they need to take a professional responsibility so you need to train your engineers and and even business personnel whoever is involved with these uh, ethical value systems so they they take their responsibilities um 
And then next is accountability. And then legal systems need to keep them accountable for what they have done, right? So especially if a negative uh, consequence happens as a result of deployment of AI product or service. And the last but not the least is uh, principles want promotion of human values. This is a more idealistic goal mm. um, that they want to promote human values. Although it's a little tricky. Yeah, it seems a bit generic. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, it's tricky because human values, like, for example, uh, human values of people living in Canada versus people living in South America or Asia uh, may be different. Yeah. And human values for people living in, uh, like, 1860 versus 2021 are probably different as well. So as the time shifts, our values shift. So the question then remains is what are the human values that we that are universal that we want to deploy in AI if we can? Even that's very difficult. Like we to deploy human values within an AI uh, product or service, it's very difficult. It's, it's an active area of research uh, that uh, researchers are looking at as to how it can be done. Wow, that's um, yeah. I I never thought you know you'd include something so yeah so generic into uh, what seems like such a rigid uh, policy on how to implement AI. Um, and how how do you sort of control for these possible differences in human values, whatever they may be? So I guess the best way that I have seen is companies are then asking their own board board members and own C-level management as to what is what are the values that a company wants to encompass or inculcate. Mm-hmm. So um, values that Microsoft uh, may, may have may be different from uh, values uh, uh, by a com- Chinese company, let's say. Mm-hmm. So... Um, they, they may have different values and, and within their AI product or services, they will uh, try to deploy the values that the company believes in. Oh, okay. If that makes sense. So, so yeah, I guess it is uh, a bit specific to the context or industry the company is working in, um, you know, whatever part of the world they're in um, and all that. Um, For, I'll give you one example. Um, you know, the, uh, the facial detection technology, the face detection oh, yeah. technology, some companies are completely not comfortable with it. Mm-hmm. They say we are not going to engage in it because there are a lot of harmful consequences and other companies are fine with it. And some companies are fine with um, helping military uh, with their AI needs and other companies are not. So different companies have their different value system. Hmm. So, yeah, okay. It, I guess that does put things a bit more into perspective, um, even though it is such a, a a general topic, but there's no really one uh, right or wrong for AI in these sort of contexts. It's just dependent on, you know, who who's at the top, you know, what, what do these uh, directors really want um, from their uh, company or who do they want to serve? Um, and uh, yeah, once again, just puts puts things into context for why we use AI in the first place. And it's um, the humans at the top that that end up making the decision of 
yes or no, I want to implement the system. Yeah, definitely. And um, I mean, it could be as granular as when you're issuing credit uh, to individuals, um, what values that you want to deploy? Do you want to, um, is race one of the criteria that you can use or not in making your credit decisions? And most companies, of course, uh, even regulations don't allow uh, making decisions based on the race of the individual. Um, so in most companies, the answer is no, the race cannot be used as a criteria. Um, but uh, having said that, it's still difficult because sometimes what we find is that people from one race may be uh, staying in one postal code and you may be using geographical region as one of the criteria in uh, as you're determining the credit decisions and the race is kind of connected to that. As, as you must have heard examples like that. So it's it's a very difficult um, process to deploy uh, values within the production of AI products or service, but uh, there is an ask for it. People want it. Whether scientists can deliver it or not, that's another story. Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, so I want to go back maybe just a few steps. And uh, at some point you mentioned, you know, um, sort of the introduction of a uh, risk management consultation step. So I believe that's sort of more or less where you come in um, in a way and you have lots of experience on that end. So um, how do you actually, you know, uh, assess the risk of a company employing uh, AI for, uh, I guess, whatever, uh, whatever reason it may be? What are some of your go-to steps? Hmm. So before a product gets deployed, product or service gets deployed, you could um, do a risk assessment of deployment. uh, What that requires is you consult with various parties that are involved, including the customers that are going to use the product, uh, potentially representatives from government, representatives from various departments within the company, to, to try to really figure out what are the various risks that, that can come out of that deployment. And then once you have the risk assessment, you, of course, prioritize that risk assessment, high, medium, low, and then you start to tackle it. You're like, oh, these are the high-level risks that first I'm going to tackle. And uh, if you figure out remediation plans, like, okay, if this happens, what is this, my company going to do? Can we actually deal with these risks? Should we have a liability insurance just in case this, these risks come into play? Are these risks too significant to human life or liberty or happiness um, or, um, or livelihood that we should not even deploy this AI product or service? So you could do a, a risk assessments before deployment and um, only deploy the product if it uh, meets, if it's if the risk is below a certain threshold that your company has figured out that uh, the threshold that the company is willing to tolerate is below a certain level. So how do you actually quantify risk? Is there sort of like a scale or a probability of, you know, how risky um, a product might be? So generally risk is determined. You look at the probability of something happening and the impact of it to have of it happening generally okay. in dollar dollar terms. Hmm. Um, 
uh, it is um, companies convert everything to um, to dollars and cents, as you know. Um, even human life, let's say if a human life gets lost, right? So the company may say, well, uh, company may get sued if somebody using that product or services uh, die. And if that happens, then company would have to pay out millions of dollars. Okay. And uh, now if you multiply that, uh, so you what you look at in order to do the risk assessment, you look at the probability of an incident happening and the impact in dollars of that um, that uh, that uh, risk may create. Got it. And um, of course, um, for some organizations, um, it should be a criteria that you don't want humans to die because of your products or humans to have a significant negative consequence on their health. So hopefully that is part of their criteria as well beyond just dollars. Hmm. Well, so I guess that sort of uh, sums up pretty nicely, you know, uh, the whole, everything from the start of how you take these overarching principles, you work down to the nitty gritty details. Um, and then once, you know, companies actually uh, take this stuff into consideration and they try and implement them into products and services, whatever, then you sort of step in with the risk management um, and assess, I guess, in a convert everything to dollars and cents, like you said, um, and, and assess really, um, is this product viable? Can it help optimize, um, you know, this company's uh, profits or, um, you know, uh, efficiency in whichever processes they're looking to do? That's, um, I guess, a very nice way to uh, bring everything back, every single one of the processes. I want to say, Agal, though, um, as part of this thesis, there's something else that has come out very clearly as well, that generally um, in governance, we talk about three pillars. Before okay. this work, when I went to literature, there were three pillars of governance, uh, which was uh, return maximization. So mm -hmm. governors wanted to maximize their ret return from any uh, money that they deploy, uh, resource optimizations. They wanted to do that work in the least possible resources and and risk optimization. They wanted the least possible risk out of that endeavor. So three pillars. So what I've put in is now there's a fourth pillar, which is called societal optimization. Oh, okay. So I say that governors need to look at the four pillars now. And the societal optimization then looks at society's impact on society. Hmm. both positive impact from your product or service as well as negative impacts. And then try to create a product that optimizes that in favor of the positive impact. So you want more positive impacts on society from your product or service uh, as compared to negative impacts. Well, and that, that's, of, of course, extremely relevant. Uh, you know, people are really, um, uh, they're really aware, you know, that, uh, everything is really interconnected. It's not really e even when you say society, I guess it's uh, not just down to our own uh, communities or uh, uh, provinces, states, countries. It's like, it's almost a global society now that everything is so interconnected. Um, and I'm, Definitely. I'm yeah, I'm, I'm sure you see that all the time. Yeah, you can create an app uh, or a product or service in Canada but it's generally your agenda is worldwide deployment mm -hmm. that people anywhere use it. 
So you have to look at all humans and see uh, whether whether or not uh, they're going to be positively impacted by your product. And then you may decide, you know, um, in order to decrease the risk on society, um, you're not going to sell the product to particular type of people. So, for example, you're not going to uh, sell your product to police departments or you are not going to sell your product to um, people who are less than 18 years old. Um, so you may put some restrictions on your product to make to decrease negative impact on society. Wow. All right, and that's, uh, I guess, of course, once again, based on context, based on those human yes. values, um, you know, what is the company doing? What is the overall goal? Um, and again, it's uh, AI is uh, just encapsulates uh, everything down from, you know, a company's basic mission statement to which recommendation I get on Amazon product A versus product B. Definitely. Yeah. Everything is connected. And yeah. um, with AI, that's why I think it's important to train the board of directors because a lot of decisions that management makes get impacted by what board of directors say. But yeah. if they are not knowledgeable, they may not be able to guide uh, the C-level management in the right way. So my company's job is to train those board of directors so they can think about all of these uh, these concerns or issues that, that I've raised in this interview and more in the thesis um, and and hopefully make, a bet, make better decisions. Oh. So I'd, I'd like to take this time to maybe uh, uh, switch gears for the conversation a bit. So I know you were nominated as the uh, McMaster Women in Tech Changemaker for August 2020, I believe. Um, yeah. And I know it, it's something you're really passionate about. Um, so I was wondering, sort of for those younger generations, especially women, how do you encourage these people to enter STEM fields and um you know, to pursue maybe not just the governance of AI in particular, but, you know, this sort of huge field that's coming out of uh, AI in general. Like what, what can we do to sort of yeah, in encourage uh, younger people to, to join in on the cause? Sure. Uh, so the first thing is they need to start early. Okay. I think uh, earlier you can start uh, ideally in elementary school, if not elementary school, then high school at, at the very least and start doing AI-related projects. Hmm. So maybe um, there could be a joint collaboration between high schools and universities. Universities, for example, McMaster AI Society can mm -hmm. actually be collaborating with high schools in Hamilton and uh, taking some of the students through some projects, kind of hand-holding them to some, some um, simple AI-based projects so they start to get used to it. So that's one, projects in uh, starting in er earlier on in their lives and related education as well. So this means that they'll be taught how to do it and then they'll do, do hands-on projects. Secondly, it's important to make projects relevant. So it seems like uh, girls are not as attracted, um, although it's shifting uh, to artificial intelligence or the, these kind of technologies as boys. And... Um, there's two ways to think about it. You could say, well, if they're they're not interested, we're just gonna leave it, leave it, and whoever's interested can join join us. If not, they're uh, we are not too concerned. 
but i say we should be concerned because yeah. we need to take uh, take uh, those girls along as well who may not be interested so how do we do that we actually make technology relevant to them so we have to see um what ai projects uh, we have to see what their interests are so maybe if uh, little girls are interested in dolls for example but can in can we do little doll houses made by artificial intelligence hmm so all of a sudden uh, grade 3 grade 4 um and students uh, girls are helping make new type of doll houses using artificial intelligence or different type of doll houses or maybe different materials so it's not your usual ai projects but yeah. you look at the interests that they have and then convert it into ai projects so that you can uh, glue them in they're like oh come on in because they are interested in those and then you can think of what are the other things that they are interested in 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 life um at different stages of life and then bring so in essence uh, instead of just changing the person to te- for technology you change technology for the person almost like sometime uh, one time i had this concept of pink code pink code So how do you actually shift uh, the usage of the code um maybe you could also automate some of the coding process uh, that makes it so much easier uh for the girls who may not be interested in the detail coding um but still they could use that software because a lot of that details are automated yeah okay uh, so so it, it, so it really comes from the top down right it's not um we can't just i guess expect uh you know those uh, younger uh girls to uh, i guess pick up this interest naturally you know we take it into our own hands we uh mold the technology to fit their interests at the time we sort of uh make it as easy as possible for this to be used as a tool to you know uh yeah explore their interests learn something new um and uh yeah it's a it's a really an incredible way to think about it and personally i believe that's that's the way to go about it it really starts with education at an early level um and making sure that it's uh, applicable right because i i can stare at uh, a black screen with uh, lines of code all day long and i won't pick up a thing but you know if i can see it turn into something tangible then i might you know want to go back and stare at that black screen a bit longer and actually learn what it means and you know yeah had, definitely and yeah. and your interest may be different than some of the um at first i, I will tell you um at first i like i'm the believer that uh, men and women girls and boys they all are equal right of course so yeah. but um i had to be somebody made me cognizant that really yes they are equal but sometimes they have different interests Yeah. So if they have different interests at least some portions of them like some some people are um, you know some girls are leaders in AI right some women so so they are already uh, ahead they are teaching uh teaching men and women but then there are others who still have that those um mm, those interests that generally girls or females have so in that particular case do we cater to them or not that's the question and i answer answer that i i have is like let's cater to them let's bring them in 
but you have you as you said girl that um we can only bring them in if we cater to their interests um yeah. that that's them and the other thing i think we we need to uh that i figured out as i was doing my thesis that a lot of uh, ai development and deployment is non technical okay so which means uh, you know the process of thinking about uh, problem identification mm-hmm. uh, project management um uh, even like collection of data um or like where that data can be collected understanding how that data can be used um a lot of that is still like prior to coding you don't need coding in order to do that you just need business sense yeah. so 70 to 80% of work in ai development and deployment is non coding related hmm. so um so women who are who may not be that interested in uh, in coding they can still come into the ai field and become very successful going into the management and business field and managing ai and data scientists yeah without without even i guess having understanding of what goes behind it but you don't need to be an expert in writing the code yourself do you yeah you can have understanding uh, that kind of knowledge is required but the of understanding course. of something is um, can be done with one or two courses in yeah. ai and data science but in order to do coding to create new ai product or services you may need a lot more intensive work yeah so um with with that understanding and then a business sense they can be very successful in the ai field wow oh fantastic so finally i'd like to end off uh just with an interesting question um so if you could give your uh, 18 to 20 year old self one piece of one piece of advice for true success um what would that be hmm my 18 to 20 year self yeah like a university age mm i think i would want to tell myself that that life let's not take everything too seriously you know sometimes when we are doing courses and we there's like grades coming through instead of a plus but it's it's a or a minus and then we get so concerned like no. why is this grade low like i think i want to tell my uh, 20 year old self that uh, yes it's important to work hard but seriously don't take it too seriously that what the grade is five marks here or 10 marks there what's more important is the experience of learning experience of making those connections because eventually those connections and the network of friends that you make that's going to be very useful and also life has severious twists and turns like whatever i may have thought at age uh, age 20 um that's not what i'm doing right now i'm doing substantially different things Yeah. So to, uh, we cannot really predict uh, even as I'm sitting here girl. Um if you ask me um what I'm going to be doing 5 years from now, I may have a just a high level plan, but would the 5 years from now I would be doing that? The answer is potentially no. Mm-hmm. Because we cannot predict the future. There might be some tomorrow I may be talking to the CEO of some company that person may say well why don't you 
um, become part of our organization and they want to help me, um, uh, you know, run their division in Africa. It's not something that I'm planning, but all of a sudden I may do that. Mm -hmm. Or I may be joining United Nations and doing some work for them. Or I may start doing full-time professorship at McMaster. So all of those things are future things that could happen that are different than my immediate plan of running the Tara Tara Collaborations Inc. consulting firm. Yeah. Um, so I say, like, don't sweat the little things. Um, do your best at every moment. Help other people be happy. Help other people be happy. And just enjoy life. Wow. Oh, wonderfully, wonderfully said. Um, and thank you so much um, on behalf of myself and Mac AI, Dr. Labana, for joining me on a conversation on AI governance. You really shed light on so many amazing topics from, you know, everything from the rigid structures at the top that define, you know, how we develop the governance of AI. Um, uh, we talked about all sorts of things, risk management, um, and especially that interplay between or interpretation really of human reasoning and how we apply AI to, um, you know, benefit society and people and how we implement those at the level of different companies. So thank you so, so much for joining me. Um, I had an amazing time. Thank you, Gail, for taking the time to talk to me. Um, I think it's a real honor to talk to McMaster AI Society members and, and hopefully people outside the society as well so that they can listen to this podcast and perhaps uh, join McMaster AI Society because yeah. you guys are doing uh, a lot of good things in uh, helping develop McMaster students. If you've made it this far, thank you so much for tuning in for a discussion with Dr. Jody Lubana on the governance of AI technology. As per usual, here is today's question of the episode. What do you think is our greatest threat to cybersecurity, and how can we use things like AI governance to mitigate these threats going into the future? I hope this question keeps you all thinking, and as always, we'll see you next time. If you liked listening to this episode, then please be sure to rate us and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. To subscribe to our newsletter and get monthly updates on our upcoming events and initiatives, please visit our website at mcmasterai.com. You can also get this information by following us on Facebook at mcmasterai or on Instagram at macaisociety. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, you can become a sponsor by contacting us on social media or by email at macai at mcmaster.ca. Sponsorship comes with amazing benefits like advertising on our website and on the shows themselves, the opportunity to join us as a guest, and participation in our networking events, and more. The MacAI Society expressly disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or other damages arising out of any individual's use of, reference to, reliance on, or inability to use this podcast or the information presented in this podcast.